I would say today is I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Don't take my word for it. Take the word for it. Test everything by that beautiful book in your hand. Know it and know the God of it. If I were to ask you, why were you created? I could probably learn a lot about your biblical background, your church background. Certainly there are those that would say, and I'm talking about the church now, not the unsaved world. They're going to have even more colorful answers, perhaps. They may say, I was created to worship God. Or I was created to serve God. But sad as it is, you can get caught up in all of those things and miss the key point. You were created to be with God. God created you to have a relationship with Him. He created you, handpicked your atoms, your freckles, your teeth, the color of your eyes, where the wrinkles will wind up or have wound up and will for those of us who still have yet to wrinkle. Notice how I put us in that. He knew where all the weight would wind up. And He knew your dreams and aspirations. And He created you to be with Him. Here's the problem in any relationship. And we're talking about in a perfect world, God, if God had his way completely, what we would find is that the most intimate relationship would start between a man and a woman where they would commit themselves for the rest of their lives in marriage. And it would start there. Where the relationship would be intense and personal and practical, starting with a man rising up and being a committed man under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And as that man commits to love his wife when he doesn't feel like it, to serve her when he certainly doesn't feel like it, to honor her when he doesn't feel honorable or honoring, ultimately, when that gets worked out, God provides the blessing and sheer magnificent gift of the maelstrom hurricanes of beautiful children. And there a child is to be raised seeing a committed man. A man dedicated to the surrender and lordship of Jesus Christ who is committed to serving their mother who is stable, reliable, faithful. Someone that may not be super mysterious but rather super stable. Someone you can set your watch to. Where you kind of know, oh, Dad, here goes that joke again. Where you know that they're solid, sound in faith and in their words and in doctrine. And when that happens, you start to see, handing that concept about a God who's a father and you have nothing to overcome. Handing the concept of a God is a groom, and you'd get somebody who was in hot pursuit of you, who was really, in the simplest sense, committed till death, committed. But wouldn't it be great if we just saw that even in the church? I would expect the world to be nonsense. 
Wouldn't it be great if our church was like that? When people said, went and said, wow, you guys are all still married? What in the world is that about? Wouldn't that be great? Because let's face it, you make it two years and people applaud you. And they look at you to think, wow, do you think you can't get anyone else? I've had people say that to me. Like, I don't want anyone else. But when things start to fade in a relationship, they're going to fade in one side or another. Please hear me and forgive me for this lengthy introduction, but there's a reason for it because all of this plays into it. Relationships tend to fail in two ways. They become really liberal. And what I mean by that is you start letting things into your relationship that should never belong in your relationship. And you know it. In a love relationship, you seek to keep it fresh. When was the last time you married couples where passion was really spent, fresh passion on each other? Where there was a freshness in your relationship because you knew that there was a commitment and a safety so that you could. And what happens is you kind of liberal off. Well, you start adding a little bit more of the world and you start adding a little bit of this and your passion wanes and moves to other areas. And I've seen a lot of guys where they're committing adultery and it's not even with other women. They're just committing adultery by the things in their life that they've kind of handed it off to that's bought their passion instead of the place where it should be spent on their wives. And they're always gone even when they're there. So on one side, what you have is kind of this this veering off, if you will, to this place of the left where you're just, it's, it's just like you're not even there anymore. On the other side of it, you veer off to ritual. To ritual where, in the first case, there's a rationale where you kind of go, oh, well, you understand, well, she's going to be like this, therefore that grants me the right to kind of to do something that I wouldn't do if I really loved this girl completely. But now, because she's kind of been this way, I think I can go this way. But on the second case, it just goes to an empty ritual where now it's just kind of like the kisses only happen really, to be honest, at those moments when they're scheduled. It's the good night, it's the good morning, it's the goodbye. You know, it's that kind of thing. And all of a sudden now there really isn't anything fresh and there really isn't a great friendship that's being developed because for that it has to be current. But instead now it's a ritual. Now it's really things are said when they're said because that's when, when we say these things. But, and the reason I say that is the God who created us to have a relationship with us wants us to hear that as he brings us into this text. Because we do the same thing. On one side of it, we kind of go liberal. And what we say is we know that if we really loved God and he had everything for us and we knew that and we gave everything to him, that there were certain things we wouldn't allow in our lives, to be honest, not because is it it okay, can I still do this and go to heaven, but it's because I love him so much, I wouldn't want this in my life. And we veer to the left. And when we do, we get to this place where you realize, if, and we know that God's watching, but we've kind of hardened our hearts and we're like, yeah, but, but it's okay because there's always grace. And on that side of things, we go to this crazy liberal place where we rationale everything. And we say, yeah, but. And we even say, because we know that we have to convince ourselves. Yeah, I know that I shouldn't be sleeping with this person. I know I shouldn't be looking at that. I know I shouldn't be doing this with my money. Or I know I shouldn't be really loose with this. Or or these standards that I know that if I really, if God had totally had my heart, these things wouldn't even be on the table. But but at this point, I'm just kind of rationaling them off because, well, somewhere in it, maybe God didn't come to the time that I thought he should or provide the way I thought he should. And we get to this crazy place where we rule it all off. There's no love. And you realize those are symptoms that there's no fresh relationship there. 
because the passion clearly isn't there. On the other side of it, we just get to empty ritual. Or, you know, the only time we really pray is there's food in front of us or we're going to sleep. The only time we read is when we need to read. We have a scheduled time for it, but there's no like real exciting pursuit anymore of getting to know this person. And it becomes this empty ritual. Now, please hear me in this, because this whole thing is going to end with Jesus saying, I want to warn you, be constantly on your guard. That's the idea of being aware. I want you to be at every given moment alert and sensitive to this. That there is a cancer. There is a gangrene. There is a leaven. And the problem with leaven, like cancer, is it does, cancer does one of two things. It either metastasizes within itself, so it just becomes this big thing, but when you remove it, it's gone. Or it infects all of the cells that it touches. The second kind, this malignant type, of course, ultimately takes over your body. Unless something radical comes to intervene, it's going to kill you. That's exactly what leaven does. Leaven is so powerful, yeast, that when put into bread, it infects the entire loaf so much so that you can pull off a piece of that and put it in the next lump and it'll infect that. So you can take a piece of that and put it in the next lump and it doesn't run dry because that leaven so infects that it becomes contagious to its next and its next and its next. It decays in such a way that it takes something where the mass doesn't grow, but the size does. So now it's bigger because it's puffed up full of air, but it really isn't any bigger other than in size. But, I mean, it isn't in regards to its mass. It just looks bigger. There's not more of it, per se. Just more holes. And Jesus looks and he says, I want to warn you, be constantly aware of this leaven. Be constantly aware of this gangrene. Be constantly aware and on your guard for this cancer. And this cancer is a doctrine. That's what we read here. The doctrine, the word, by the way, uh, that we see is the word deductus, like the word we use for didactic, for those of you who might use sort of words like that for teaching. And the idea of it's different than just sort of declarations, because that word would be dogma. We get the word from the Greek. Dogma is a, if you will, a concentrated declaration of these are our doctrines, our distinctives. But he's not saying that. He's saying the teachings. And teachings is much more than just the things that are said, but now the way that they're handed off. And understand, for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we have the same thing. See, it started, and forgive me for the history, but it's important because then the text will really pick up. It started all the way back when Israel had been taken captive in 586 BC, uh, 587 BC, and that's Jerusalem, conquered, and then after 70 years was able to come back and resettle. Because when they came back and resettled, there were no more kings. So then, well, who's your rock star? Who's the guy who leads? So we looked for a guy called a Kohen Gadol. That's the chief priest, the high priest. But which, which guy do you pick? I mean, we have these guys all from this family, and what they found is that they found during David's day that a high priest was named was Zadok. And so they found people directly from his family, and they took one of those guys to make him the high priest. But the people were from that family were Zadokites from Zadok. Zadokites is where we get the term Sadducee from. It's just, if you will, an evolution of the, ver- of the term. Now imagine, if you will, that every person with the name Windsor in England was granted royal property simply because you had the, the surname Windsor. Well, would, would you want to change your name to Windsor at that point? I don't know. But, I mean, you get the, the idea. And all of a sudden, you woke up one day and you were filthy rich. 
You had the, the you had the king's the queen's treasury at your disposal. But nothing was I mean, that doesn't necessarily say that you had any heart for the country, that you had any obligation to the country or anything. You just basically woke up and you won boardwalk. Now, the reason I say that is that was what happened with this family. <clears throat> so you have a group of people now that now were given the temple property to rebuild. And they were made king of that temple, if you will. They were filthy rich. They were rich landowners. So for the Sadducees, they were kind of identified. If you were to ask them, what is the sort of icon of Judaism? They would tell you the temple. You ever wonder why when people say Jesus is blaspheming the temple, who they were talking to? Well, you're really going to get under the skin of the Sadducees because that's their thing. But they didn't believe in anything other than the first five books of the Bible. And I would hesitate to say that they wouldn't even believe those very well. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't see. They were rational-minded people, or so they thought. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in anything they couldn't see. And that makes me wonder, what about God? They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were as liberal as liberal could be. But they owned the property. Now, like that, when the pendulum swings on one side, it swings hard the other. And so we have a group of people that are like, that is not who we are. And if you will, they were kind of the back-to-the-Bible people originally. So they sought to be parash, or separate. So the parashim becomes ultimately the Pharisees, as we know it. The problem is the pendulum never stops in the middle. So now they swing way over here, and so now it's not just we're going to do all of this law and ritual, but now we're going to, well, now we're going to do every tradition. We're going to create traditions, and we're going to make sure we don't do anything that's liberal. So on this side now, tradition gets elevated to scripture size. And you have this, and you can do that in church today. You have on one side, it's like, do whatever you want. God's okay with it. Oh, I know what's in the Bible somewhere, probably Bible schmeibel. God's going to, you know, he's liquid, and he's just going to roll with the times because he's our homeboy. And that's over here. And then, but, you know, there's no judgment. We don't talk about hell. We don't talk about sin. Because that's, that's, that's going to offend people. But it is true. Gravity's true, too, by the way. And even if somebody tells you there's no gravity, don't jump off the building, please. Now, on this side of it, you have those that have gotten so caught up in the ritual that they don't even know what the Bible says anymore because they're too busy just doing the things that they've always done. And doesn't that sound like a loss of relationship on both sides? And there's the scary part. Because if we worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, this side lacks truth and this side lacks spirit. But somewhere in between is a person that actually has a fresh relationship with God. And what the Lord is saying to us, this is God in the flesh speaking to his disciples and us as his students now and saying, please listen, will you constantly be aware of this? Because it'll happen in any relationship. You veer off on one side or you veer off to the other. But either one of them is indicative that you don't have a fresh passion or a fresh current relationship with the person that you're supposed to be committed to. You've made it an empty ritual or you've made it a liberal extent, but there's no real reality to it. You know what it becomes? That becomes a politic. And that's exactly what Jesus said back in Matthew 13 when he gives us the parables. Understand, as he gives us in Matthew 13, moving to our text, he gave us seven parables. And in those seven parables, he lays this thing out heavy now understand, in the first one, there were four examples, and then there were other, there were of, the, of the seven, four parables are strictly in regards to politic. The first one, if you remember, was about the soils, and then it went to the, the parable of the terrors, and then the parable of the mustard seed that grows disproportionately big, and then the last of them, then, was the parable of the leaven. Interesting, because after those seven parables are taught, the next thing that Jesus does 
because he actually then, or Matthew, I should say, is actually lays out the illustration of every one of those now in our text. With the four soils, we saw it with Jesus being rejected in Nazareth, like the wayside soil. We saw Herod and John the Baptist, and Herod refusing him, but having that shallow response at beginning, much like the shallow rocky soil. We saw Jesus having to feed the 4,000 with the thorny soil. And then Peter, who walks on water to be, if he will, the good soil. It ended with Peter. Then the sower who goes to sow seed, but unfortunately an enemy sows tears into it. We saw that in 15 with the religious leaders standing against them. Then the mustard seed that grows in Jesus now has even gone out to Tyre and Sidon and has to weed away the empty ritual and words of a woman who doesn't even know what she's saying at first, just like the mustard seed. But then he takes us to this text. And did you notice at the end, remember, he says, beware of the leaven. He himself is telling us this. So walk through it with me in the moments we have remaining. It says in Matthew 15, 29, Jesus departed. He just departed from Tyre and Sidon, the farthest north he will go on all of his journey. He has left Israeli territory. He was in Lebanon, in essence, and well, as we know it today. And then he heads back down. As he heads back down, Mark, who also tells us this text in 731, tells us that he walked through the midst and the region of Decapolis. Why is that important? Because Decapolis is not Jewish. Decapolis is the opposite of Jewish. Decapolis were ten cities, that's what the term is, Deca, ten polis cities, that were of the Roman Empire. They had their own coins, currency, their own judicial system. They had nothing to do with the, with the Jewish people in regards to that. But Jesus was already there once before. The last time he was there, if you remember, was when a man possessed by a legion of demons, or however you want to put that, was delivered. And Jesus, he said he would follow him anywhere he went. And Jesus said, go home. You wonder why? This is why. Because the next time Jesus shows up there, there are at least 4,000 men and their families who have gathered. Well, that tells me something. Sometimes he sends you a place you don't expect. But strangely enough, he does so to bear greater fruit. Even if you don't see it at the moment. So, we read then the, the multitude came to him, verse 30, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And he laid, they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitudes marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed made whole, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Now this is where it starts. Now it is important to recognize, if you're in that place today, where maybe you kind of knew about this gospel thing, because it always starts there, by the way. Like any relationship, it starts with a commitment and a response to that commitment. Jesus showed his commitment by dying on the cross for us, paying for our sins. And if people say, I don't want to talk about sin, why not? It's in that sin that we recognize that we're guilty. I don't want to feel guilty. Well, you don't have to. You can take that guilt and hand it over to Jesus, who paid for it on the cross. He's already paid your bill. Why in the world would you want to pay it if he has? And he rose again and then says, will you be mine? That's his commitment. The question is, what are you going to do with it? But what we start to see is if you've waned in your relationship and you've gone off the liberal bend and just started adding sin into your life, thinking God's going to be okay with it because somehow God's not really watching. Or you've gone off the other side and let it get cold to where it's an empty ritual. I'm here to let you know Jesus is enough. And this is what you're wrapping yourself up. You see, in this ministry here, 
All we read is they threw him down at Jesus' feet and he took care of him. Every one of them. He was sufficient. Jesus. That was it. No ritual can replace that. And no addition can benefit. Interesting. Mark will focus from that point on on a guy, by the way, who was deaf and, blind and dumb, who for which Jesus will say a fatha. Here, by the way, we see the cacophony of people. But did you notice tucked into this? Not Okay, we've already seen the blind. We've already seen the mute. But the maimed? Did you see that in there? And what's a maimed person? It's a person missing a limb. I mean, okay, it's one thing when a guy's kind of keeling over and now he's standing straight, that would be way cool. But to watch a guy and Jesus lays hands on him and like, oh, pops like a leg or an arm or a hand, now that would be really cool to watch, wouldn't it? I mean, it's one thing when a guy's hand sort of withered and he stretches out, he's like, whoa, that's awesome. But another thing, not to have a hand at all. No wonder why it says the multitude marveled. They were amazed because they saw Jesus. Where It says not just the mute speaking, which of course Mark emphasizes, but the maimed made whole. And this is what I'm starting to, this is what I want to come at you with, please. As we go through this in these four little parts, these vignettes, you know, 19 to 21, about them served, and then the 4,000 fed, 32 to 39, 1 to 4 then, them seeking a sign, and then finally 5 to 12, this, you know, watching out for the leaven, where, of course, we conclude. It starts with this. People were coming, and they were feeling like they were incomplete, and they left whole. And what about you today? Is there something lacking in your life? And you're trying to fill it somewhere else? And you're like, if only I got married, if only I had the job, if only I had a baby, if only I... And, you've, and you play this, and what happens is you can surround yourself with people, even Christians, who play this so hard on you that you can actually have a pity party and invite them, and they just might come. But have you learned when you have soft shoulders like that that don't take you to the Word, it only gets worse? And you're saying, but God, I'm not complete without this thing. And yet Colossians 1 says, you are complete in him. Jesus didn't die for you so that he could kind of make you okay. He died to make you whole. And to stare in the face of Jesus and say, I will never be complete without this thing. Is to, if you will, to insult what he's already done for us. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't put desires on our heart, but here's the difference. If we come to Christ and let him fill us to overflowing, we'll never come to somebody else in the needy state we shouldn't be coming. And when two people meet because they're desperate for companionship, they're desperate for feeling important or purpose, and they, come, they become cannibals on each other, and you know what? That is how most relationships start. Even in the church, because we've not been taught otherwise. But aren't you tired of it? Aren't you tired of telling God what's wrong with him because you told him that he needed to do something to make you whole when really you're turning away from him? Who's the only one who can make you whole? No wonder why the people are amazed here. But Jesus has been serving them. And what we're going to find is he's been serving these people for three days. And then he says in verse 32, Jesus called his disciples to himself and he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have had nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on their way. 
Now, we're aware of the fact already that Matthew has already spoken to us <coughs> just in the previous chapter about feeding 5,000. I find it interesting, of course, it's the 5,000 before the 4,000, so we naturally assume if Jesus could feed five, he certainly can pay, take care of the four. What's wrong with these disciples? Man, if I were there, I certainly wouldn't be doubting. Would Really? But there's a new variable in this. I remind you, Jesus appears to be in Gentile territory. And maybe we could be amazed the first time because after all, Jesus fed 5,000 men and their families, but they were Jews. And Jesus came for the Jews. <laughs> now we're looking and what we're seeing is we're seeing these Gentiles and we're like, oh, come on, really? Three days. By the way, interestingly enough, the Jewish people, according to the previous chapter, had only been with Jesus that day. And the hour was getting late and the disciples said, you should send them away because it's getting late. You know, all the diners are going to close by the time they get there. But look at the question closely in verse 33. His disciples say to Jesus, where? That's the question. Not how, but where? Where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a multitude? Where? Don't you realize in the first case, people came that weren't whole in essence and were made whole because only Jesus can do that. But in the second case, now we have this issue where there's a need and we feel like Jesus has put this need upon us. So we look out and we see the need and it's vast. And then we look at ourselves and our resources and we realize we have nothing to really offer that could even remotely make a dent in this. And in a moment like that, we start asking, well, where am I going to get what I need for this? In the first case, in that first three verses, notice the where is for me, personally. Where am I going to go to be made complete? Where am I going to go to get filled? Where am I going to go to find that peace? Where am I going to go for that? That's me. But now that, now that that's been taken care of, I start looking at you and I'm going, well, where in the world are we going to take? How are we going to take care of those people? And, and you realize at that moment, the where is a very telling question because the where tells me that if I were tight with Christ like I should be, I shouldn't even be asking this. I'd just be looking at Jesus and going, so how are you going to pull this one off like the last time? I just get excited because Jesus just does those kind of things. But in a case like this, it's like somehow maybe I'm moving off to the liberal where I'm adding things, but I can't add enough to take care of this need. Or I've gone over to this ritual now, and as I've gone to this ritual, I'm really never going to be able to take care of this need. And I'm looking, and I'm going, where in the world am I going? I'm looking everywhere but right in front of me where Jesus is. I'm going, where are we going to do this? What programs do we have to develop to feed the Gentile program? Or the, all right, well, now what do I have to do? Well, what am I going to add to this? Who do I get? If I could just get a couple of wealthy investors, now we're good. That's all I need. Over here, if I just get an investor, over here, let's get the program going. But in the middle of it is Jesus where I should be looking and going, Jesus, only you can take care of this need. How much of our stress is because we're looking to the left or to the right? How much of it? Can I see again, be constantly aware on your guard of the leaven and the Pharisees? Sadducees? Because it's exactly the problem. As I look, I'm realizing, wow, the reason I'm stressing is because I'm just not looking at him. I'm looking over here and I'm going, oh, no, what, how can, what can I just kind of, what rules can I bend to get this? Like a Sadducee. Or what programs do I have to develop? What traditions do I need to start to make this happen so that I don't have to deal with this again? Like the Pharisee. And I'm, and I'm, meanwhile, Jesus is standing right in front of me. So he asks then, how many loaves do you have? 
How many loaves do I have? Well, I have seven. Notice there are more loaves for less people here. There were five the last time. Oh, we have a few little fish. Now, do you think any one of us at that point might go, hmm, this is a little bit familiar. We only just did this last chapter. But notice in verse 36, he took it. And don't miss that. Because you know what these fish and these loaves had in common with all those sick people before? They were just brought to Jesus, that's all. And once they wind up in the hands of Jesus, once my need winds up at the feet of Jesus, I'm full. But once the need around me winds up in the hands of Jesus, it's taken care of. I need to be at the feet of Jesus. And then all of the problems that face me, all of the challenges that face me need to be in his hands. And then maybe I could become his hands and feet for someone else. So he took it like he did, gave thanks, broke it, gave it out. And he fed all the people. Now we read here that there were large baskets. It's a small point, but it's a point nonetheless. With the Jewish people, the particular basket that they had was called a kofinos. Kofinos, by the way, is a small basket. It's basically, in essence, really, it's kind of like a small backpack. It's the kind of thing we would carry to be able to carry, you know, a lunch for the day. It's our lunchbox. And there were 12 of those. But this word here is not the word that we would say, the kofinas. Now the word is spuros. And spuros, by the way, is the word when Paul was let out of the city of Damascus in a basket. That's a much larger basket. <coughs> now we're looking at a basket like something you might find that would be like a large laundry basket or a small like hot air balloon basket. It's a much larger basket. And there are seven of those. And I get why seven. That makes sense to me. Because there are seven primary Gentile cities, by the way, we saw even addressed back in Exodus. We'll see, by the way, in regards to that, there's always sort of this attention towards seven in this. A number of completions, seven days in the week, seven dwarfs, seven. It's a number of completions. But interesting enough in this is that they do so. They ate just like before, and Jesus heads back now into primarily Jewish territory. Magdala, the first time it's mentioned in the New Testament, we know a gal from Magdala. Her name is Mary. When we read Mary Magdalene, Magdalene means she's from Magdala. Magdala is a tower, by the way. It was a place where normally they assume it was a place of great commerce. So Jesus now is head back into Jewish territory and things seem to pick up where they left off. The last time Jesus was in, Gen- in Jewish territory, he was hammered by the religious leaders. He heads back and they're back at it. There's really, it's as if they never left, as if Jesus never left. But notice in chapter 16, verse 1, as we move into our third of our four areas, what happens? It says that the Pharisees came, and they came testing him. Testing him means that they're trying to prove him wrong here. It's the same way they could use if you're trying to prove someone right. Trying to prove you of your honest metal. And they said they want to see a sign from heaven. Interesting, by the way, Jesus is going to point out and say, well, you already look at heaven, and this is what you come up with. But why are they doing this? Because there was a precedent. Well, Noah had a rainbow. Moses, he, you know, rained hail. Joshua made the sun stand still in the valley of Ajalon. Samuel brought thunder and Elijah called on fire. It sounds to me like, you know, those big guys, if you're going to really put yourself up in the big guy ter- in a category, territory, you're going to have to do something pretty magnificent to really impress us all. But Jesus had just fed 4,000 men and their families. The last big public miracle until his resurrection, if you will. Seems like the last major 
miracle to the multitudes for the Jews was feeding 5,000 and then to the Gentiles four. But they want to see something else. And they want to dictate. And hear me, they want to dictate his sign. Are you there? Where does that fit into our relationship with him? When we start placing demands on what kind of sign God needs to do for us to follow him. We say, God, I'll really follow you, but you need to do this first. You need to give me this. You need to get me married. You need to give me a baby. You need to give me a house. You need to give me this job, this person. If this person falls in love with me, God, then I'll follow. Then I'll follow you. If I win the lotto, then clearly, God, I will follow you. But let me just say this. All good gifts come from the Father of heavenly lights in whom there's no shadow of turning. If it's good, he'll give it. And we read in Psalm 84 that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So you'd say, but this thing has got to be good. It's only good in God's mindset if it brings you closer to him. Is that a weird thought? Do you realize God withholding something from you that you think is so awesome could be worse or could be a greater act of love than God giving it to you? That God actually could give you cancer and it would be better for you if it brought your relationship closer to him? No, I'm not in any way wishing cancer on any of you. Go understand that. But from God's perspective, the most important thing is your relationship with him. And any good gift is a gift he gives that brings you closer to him. I've given my children and my wife gifts with the primary intent of them being closer to me. Those are my favorite gifts. They create great memories. My great gifts, my greatest gifts, if I could ever afford them, are things like, let's go on a trip, the four of us. Let's go on a trip, the two of us. Just you and me. Let's get back to that relationship. The worst gifts I've ever given are the gifts that take them away. That hamper the relationship. Somehow put them in a place where they're predisposed to not being intimate. They're my least favorite. They want a sign, but the sign they have is a specific one. They want it in heaven. Jesus answers and he says then in verse 2, you guys, you know how to look at the sky and you know how to get stuff from it, don't you? Sky is red in the evening. It'll be fair weather tomorrow. Sky is red in the morning. It'll be bad. This is not a new idea. Of course, obviously, the, the scripture is the one that sort of lays it out, and that's important. It's important to note that even Shakespeare quoted this in Venus and Adonis in his own way when he said, like a red morn that ever yet betokened, wreck to the seaman, tempest to the field, sorrow to the shepherd, woe to the birds, gusts of foul flaws to herdmen and to the herds. I get it. You ever wonder what in the world that means? Well, here's the simplest of it. It works best when you have a big waterfront to your left, which Israel does. They happen to have the blessing of the Mediterranean just to their west. So the sun rises in the east. You're probably aware of that. And it sets to the west. It doesn't matter where you are on an earth. It will always rise on the east and set on the west because the earth will always spin the same direction. We get that. When high pressure comes in and the air is thin, there's warmth with high pressure. The sky becomes, in essence, the blue diffuses and red takes its place. When the sun sets, that's in the west where the water is. And when you see that and the air is thin and it's red, therefore, you can kind of say, well, there isn't a lot of water in the air and that's what should be coming tomorrow. It's going to be a good day tomorrow. If it were dark 
and ominous, you kind of go, well, that might not be such a good day. When it's on the other side, that means that, well, now the good weather has actually made its way to the wrong side of us. Now it's departing. And then I look at the other side and I realize there's bad weather coming to push that high pressure to my east. And I go, well, that's bad. Interesting, in both cases you see red, but in both cases it means something differently. It all depends on whether you're looking at the sunrise or the sunset. Isn't it interesting we can look at the same evidence as somebody else and come up with completely opposite conclusions? I can look at the Grand Canyon. I could say it doesn't take a lot of water. It just takes a lot of time. No, that's their answer. I say a whole lot of water like a Noah flood in very little time. But we look at the same evidence. It's interesting because the very same Jesus that I've set my life upon others will find as a stumbling block to him. For the very same reasons. Because he died on a cross, but I'm willing to admit that I need that. He rose from the grave to give me new life, but I want that. And there's the difference. So please hear me. Jesus is looking at this. He's going to look at You guys aren't looking for a sign you're trying to play me. You already know how to look. But even if I gave you a sign, you would already twist it for your own personal benefit. And you know, there are times like that where God's like, you know, you're saying to God, God, if you really want me to go to that party, I don't know, let a bird fly by my window. And then you stare out until a bird flies by. Or, you know, or, you know, something like, well, maybe, you know, my, my lettuce wilt in this hour while I'm sitting here. I mean, something where you kind of know this should happen. And we play that out like we would a Sadducee. And Jesus is like, look at, you really want a generation or a sign? There's only one sign I'm going to give you. And that's the sign of Jonah. Death and resurrection. That's the way it works. He was in the belly of the fish. He came out. He was very different when he came out. And I want you to know that's what you're going to get. And that's the only sign that's going to mean anything. If you can't get that sign, no other sign is going to mean anything to you. You say, well, Jesus healed people. Well, other people heal people. Well, Jesus raised the dead. I'm sure other people raised the dead. I read an article. Well, that must make it true, right? Because we all know all articles are true. But if you can't deal with the fact that Jesus died and resurrected for you, none of the others are going to mean anything. And you know what you'll do at best? You'll play the liberal card. You'll play the ritual card. But you won't ever play the relationship. So that takes us to our last area. Where Jesus now looks and he says to his disciples as he gets them away from all of that. He says, did you guys learn from that? <laughs> be careful, be, be careful. Now look at what they were doing. In order to tell God, we, and they were demanding a sign from him, what you're doing is you're actually not making Jesus Lord. Because if Jesus were Lord, you wouldn't be telling him what to do. But let's be honest. Do we do that? Do we tell God, you need to do this? What's wrong? By this point, God, this should be happening. Why not? Do you really think that's going to make a really good relationship between you and anyone? If your whole relationship, you know what happens when it becomes like that? Your whole relationship revolves on some matter that you were disappointed in. Have you known that? So all of a sudden, imagine if I told you that I really needed a loaf of bread. And you came and you, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot that loaf of bread. But from every time I see you from this point on, all I want to bring up is how you didn't bring me a loaf of bread. I would look at you and I'd think, you're the not bring the bread person. <clears throat> you're not even a person anymore. You're just that event. And you think, well, man, what, what about now? No, 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 it's too late. We can do that with God. And we turn on the side and we say, oh, God, 
Where is this thing? You said good, and I've defined good. That's rationale. The moment that you tell God what the definition is for his terms, be that marriage, be that peace, be that something good. We are sitting in his seat and we don't belong there. And there's the danger, beloved. When Jesus gave those parables, he warned us of the parable of the leaven. He said the problem with the leaven is that it will infect everyone. It will infect the whole lump. It's a very scary thought. It means the whole church, as he speaks of the politic, is going to ultimately find itself on one side or the other. It's going to either find itself super liberal and rationalizing all of God's truths, or it's going to find itself going to empty ritual. But what about the people that just want a relationship with him? Well, here's the deal. If you tell God, well, he needs to accept me for who I am, but you're not taking him as Lord, you're not even modeling the thing you demand because you need to take him for who he is. And he's Lord. And you don't have to like what he says. To be honest, if you don't like what he says, you have a better chance to prove that he's Lord in your life. The Lord's like, I just want to cover you in blessings and make you happy and comfortable. Well, which one of us would say, oh, I could submit to that. But the moment he tells you to do something that you don't want to do, or to give up something you don't want to give up. Now we really see whether he's Lord in our life or not. Beloved, this is what I'd like to just challenge us with. If we don't let Jesus be who he belongs to be in our lives, this is what we rob ourselves of. What we rob ourselves of is the wholeness we saw in our first example. And we rob ourselves of the fullness that we have in our second And we rob ourselves of the clarity we have in the third. And we become drunk with our own ambitions. Going, God, this. I think one of the best ways we can prove our faith is in time. Where something isn't happening like we'd like it to. The way we'd like it to. In the time we'd like it to. And we're saying, God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And God, we don't hear anything from God. You know why? Because the reason if God spoke anything, we do it. But what he's telling us to do is nothing. And the only way that we're going to get that is if he doesn't speak. He says, be still. No, I'm God. Stop running. As we go to prayer, there are a whole bunch of people here who are really wealthy, who are very popular, very powerful, and very religious, who Jesus will call sons of hell, that we would have modeled our life after in those days because somehow we would have been convinced they were the epitome of what a good Christian should look like or in those days a good Jew. And we could do the same thing. And we can play the role. But it's time to no longer do that. The night is far spent. The day is far spent. And beloved, it is time for us to get right with the Lord before it's too late. To not play games. And if today I'm calling out to you who call yourself Christian, who have said yes to Jesus at that offer, I'm asking him to carve off our lefts and rights. 
We could stop being liberal and rationalizing everything off. Stop getting crazy legal and make everything an empty ritual. But a fresh look at his word to know him. And a fresh time in prayer. And a fresh look at church. That we wouldn't come here as patrons, consumers, but as servants. You know, we call it Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon service. But the question is, how many people serve at service? And how many people have just come to be served? Beloved, there are people next to you that you might be more equipped to serve than I. And what would happen if the body functioned the way it should? All parts work. In whatever way God wants to use them. However magnificent or mundane, that's his job. But I'm going to call out to you Christians and me too. And I want to say, I want to stand here and say, it's time to get right. No more hardening our hearts or stiffening our necks. And if you've not ever accepted the gift of Jesus Christ or you're not sure, I'd like to invite you today to start that relationship with him by accepting the gift he paid on the cross and confessing him as Lord so that he could take the proper place in your life he deserves. Will you pray with me? Lord, I want to thank you for this time. I want to thank you for this beautiful text. And I want to thank you, Lord, that you've warned us here to not turn to the right or the left, as we've heard in Isaiah, but to keep our eyes pressed forward for the upward call that you've placed in our lives in you. And I pray for every Christian here that has made that confession and accepted your offer, but has been playing Lord in your stead and rationalizing off things you've called wrong and making them less wrong. And have been negligent to take the, the baton that you hand, the mantle that you lay upon them for the things you call them to. And they're balking. And they think somehow that there's a decent excuse. But, as if somehow there's escape clauses to the great love that you're pouring out. And, and they're missing it, God. They're missing it. They're, they're missing the wholeness and they know it. And they're missing the fullness and they know it. They're missing the clarity and they know it. Because they're busy diverting to the left or to the right. And now church has been a ritual. It's hard to get up and come to something if all we do is we come because we have to. But maybe it's not church. It's us. It's our hearts. They need to be right with you. And I pray in this moment, Lord, if that be me, or anyone else here in this flock, and we've been using excuses that we think somehow you will bow to. I pray your Holy Spirit would have free reign right now to speak to us. And don't let us go. That we would genuinely right now hear you and recognize we need to get right. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed and ears are listening, if you know or you're not sure if you've ever said yes to Jesus, and you know you haven't, I'd like to lead you in a prayer today if you'd like to say yes to this Jesus who created you to be with him. 
He didn't create you to serve Him. He created you to be with Him. And worship and service will follow suit. But He created you to love Him. He wants your heart. Even as you have His. And here's the prayer. I ask you to listen. And if you agree at the end, I ask you to give a confident amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my prayer now. And here it is. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And you punish sin because you're a righteous judge. You so love me. You took all of that punishment and placed it upon your son, your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, who died for my sins on that cross because that's where my sins belong. And just like Scripture promised, He rose again on the third day after being buried and offers me a new life with Him as my Lord. And I say yes. I may not understand everything, but I understand this. If you want to pay what, what I shouldn't or wouldn't want to pay, I would be a fool to say no. So I say yes. Jesus, have my life. and Be the Lord of it. And make me something beautiful in you. So I hand myself over to you. May my relationship be evergreen, I pray. Jesus, in your name, if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.